0: Have you
1: heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have Have you
2: heard? Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
3: And I'm Jack Schneider.
2: And Jack, this episode is full of something that I think people could really use right now. Do you want to guess what it is?
3: Orange Julius
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're really speaking my language. I have been back in the heartland and while I was there I was visiting the mall where I spent many, many hours as a tween and then a a teen. You know, I didn't work at Hot Dog on a Stick, but I did know people who worked there, and they wore the outfits. You wore Hot
3: Dog on a Stick adjacent.
2: Red, yellow, and blue outfits with very pronounced hats, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't far away from the Orange Julia store.
3: Because sometimes you want to follow up that Hot Dog on a Stick lemonade with... It's citrus-based cousin in Orange Julius.
2: And I have to say, I was actually pleasantly surprised by how lively White Oaks Mall in Springfield, Illinois remains to this day.
3: I would love just a a poll of what listeners at this point in the show think this episode is going to be about.
2: You already told us, Jack. It's about Orange Julius. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's not about Orange Julius. It is an episode that is filled with something we all need right now, inspiration.
3: (laughs) It's a different kind of juice.
2: Okay, so as everyone who is listening to this knows, we have been in the throes of what many, many commentators keep referring to as school choice spring. Boy, does it have momentum.
3: (laughs) That's right. We keep seeing pictures of Corey DeAngelis popping up in selfies with uh, with his fan base all across America, so we we've got a we're doing live tracking of Corey on our Doppler.
2: And in this episode, we're going to be chronicling a story that really hasn't gotten nearly enough attention, and that is that in a surprising list and lengthening list of states, the privatization train has been slowed and even stopped. And so I thought it would be really interesting to hear from folks in places like Kansas, Idaho, and Georgia, I was hoping to include Texas, but that battle rages on, to hear from them about what made the difference? What kinds of coalitions were formed? What were the issues and what finally made the difference?
3: And one thing that I think listeners may want to pay attention to during this episode is the relationship between slowing down the voucher train and stopping the voucher train, because I think many may assume that slowing it down is simply something that happens automatically en route to the ultimate aim of stopping it. I think it it may actually be the opposite, that once you slow it down, it will stop automatically because once people get a better look at it, they really aren't going to have the same interest or commitment to it as if it simply goes roaring through before they are able to figure out that it really doesn't advance their interests.
2: Well, Jack. I live very close to a train track, and even I found all of those train metaphors a little hard to follow. Yeah. <laughs> We'll
3: slow it down for you.
2: Well, Jack, as is my custom, once I got started working on this episode, I just could not stop talking to people. Partly because it was just so refreshing to hear stories about people actually winning, right? And so, so everybody I would talk to, I would say, "Do you have any suggestions for other folks who I'm, who might be good for me to talk to?" And of course, they did. And so I would just, I would just keep going. And um, so I ended up talking to student organizers in Georgia, to. Uh, folks from a group called Reclaim Idaho, which has been doing amazing work on all kinds of issue areas, and to a whole bunch of organizers in Kansas, including legislators, teachers, and you are going to be meeting all of them.
3: And for graduate students in education who are listening, that would be purposive sampling as well as snowball sampling.
2: Well, I've never heard of any of those, but... I can tell you that it makes for great listening. So you hang out for a little bit. I'm gonna be bringing you back in momentarily to reflect on some of the lessons that we're learning.
3: And I'll just be here with my corn dog and my lemonade.
2: Okay, now to the main event. First stop on our tour is Kansas, Topeka, to be precise. We're headed to the state capitol, where on a Tuesday in April, a group of former Teachers of the Year, representing both political parties, gathered to send a message to lawmakers. Samantha Neal, who was honored for her teaching in 2018, was one of them.
4: As a bipartisan collective group of Kansas teachers spanning the state, we come to ask three things. Number one, we ask for any funds that divert public dollars to private entities we cannot support that. Number two, we ask for our Kansas legislators to pass a clean school funding bill. And number three, we recognize there is a legal obligation to fully fund special education in our state, so that we can meet the most important needs of our specialized learners. We come to you today because empowering our public schools, which educate over 90% of Kansas children, is the surest way to empower the success of our students and our state.
2: Spoiler alert, it worked. Thanks to the advocacy of these teachers and many more Kansans, lawmakers here rejected a controversial bill that would have brought so-called education savings accounts or ESAs to the sunflower state. And for the purposes of this episode, we want to understand why the bill would have given around $5,000 directly to parents to spend on the schooling option of their choice. Religious private schools, home schools, micro schools. In other words, essentially the same concept that has been on a roll this spring. Looking at you, Iowa and Arkansas, but in Kansas, ESAs hit a wall. Leah Fleiter is the Assistant Executive Director of Advocacy for the Kansas Association of School Boards, of which Kansas has 286. She says that language was key to the bill's defeat. While ESAs are a relatively new concept, vouchers are not. And she took every opportunity she had to remind lawmakers that the two are one and the same. Not education savings accounts, not
5: some kind of wonderful scholarship program. This is a voucher. I mean, I'm sort of infamous for saying that if it looks like a voucher and quacks like a voucher, it's a voucher. The first voucher bill in Kansas was um, introduced in the second week of the session. And we all kind of said, hey, you know, we're going to call a voucher a voucher and uh, we're not going to quit.
2: Leah was part of a coalition against school vouchers in Kansas that included both familiar groups and a lot of new ones.
5: There were... Some strong groups that were already in existence. And then as the session wore on, you had some of these newer groups like Educate Reno County and Educate Butler County that popped up as people really started to catch on to how bad these vouchers really were going to be.
2: There was also strong opposition from rural lawmakers in Kansas. Leah says that rural Republicans have largely gone along with an existing school choice program that relies on tax credits because it didn't really impact them, but this time felt different.
5: This year, the educational savings accounts bills that we saw were pretty much, you know, universal vouchers along the Arizona model. And that really does ring a bell with rural legislators when their local school board members and principals and teachers explain to them that, you know, Jennifer could just set up a micro school in an empty spot in the local strip mall and she doesn't have to teach to the state standards. She doesn't have to take special ed kids. She doesn't even have to meet the fire code for Pete's sake. That really starts to make them pay attention because the very smallest school district in Kansas has 38 kids in the whole district. And so, you know, if you peel even just a few of those kids off to a micro school, meanwhile, the small school district still has to keep the building open.
2: Thank you, Leah. It's always been a dream of mine to open a micro school in Kansas. Leah says that once rural lawmakers understood what a threat education savings accounts were to their local schools, they weren't shy about saying that.
5: We have one legislator who is in a far western area of the state, and he also happens to be an ag radio guy. That's what he does for a living. So he's a good communicator. And he said, you know, I understand this whole thing maybe if we want to fund the student, not the building or the institution. But he said, you know, in my communities, those institutions, those buildings, they are my community. Because in a rural area, if that school closes, the whole town dies. I mean, people will fight tooth and nail to keep their school open.
2: Now, at this point, this story probably seems familiar. We've got assorted education groups doing what they do. We've got rural lawmakers protecting their schools, a role they've long played in states like Kansas. But something else was happening. Erin Woods is the legislative coordinator for the Kansas PTA, but it wasn't that long ago that she was just, in her words, a regular person trying to make sense of politics. The issue that activated her was an effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, and she decided it was time to make her voice heard, if she could just figure out who to call and what to say.
6: How do I do that? Who is that? You know, what do I say? And I was, you know, very nervous about that kind of thing. And the first phone call I made, I think I wrote out exactly what I was going to say and read it word for word. So that was kind of my first taking action. And then that made me think we need more people taking action, which basically led me to thinking, I bet there's a lot of people who are just like me, who, you know, maybe nervous to call, don't know what to say, or, you know, who to call and that kind of thing. So I kind of just really went out of my comfort zone and started emailing some friends slash acquaintances to kind of inform them of what was happening and encouraging them to shout to their legislators. I think the main thing I did was I really gave them step-by-step step how to do it.
2: Erin's own experience of figuring out how to express her opinion really shaped how she approaches activism today. And so as she spread the word to friends and neighbors and Kansans of all stripes about just how bad this voucher bill was, she made sure to always explain how the legislative process works.
6: In my mind, what helped this along was just a grassroots effort and a grassroots effort of really explaining to people how to navigate the process. I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that, you know, a bill starts in committee and at that point you have an opportunity to provide testimony. We broke it down and we were like, you know, this is how you submit testimony. Here are some helpful talking points for you to craft a piece of testimony, letting people know that anyone can provide testimony. You know, we can all do this.
2: And it worked. The idea of using public money to pay for private religious schools, not to mention home schools and micro schools, is really unpopular in Kansas, especially when the state is not providing adequate funding for its existing schools and for special education in particular. And people lined up to express that. We managed to get 268
6: pieces of opposition testimony to the education savings account bill, which is huge. To get that much from just citizens who could show that they were opposed to these bills was really powerful.
2: Now, in addition to hearing from school board folks and teacher groups, lawmakers were suddenly hearing from a lot of their constituents, telling them to vote against education savings accounts. Aaron says that for many of these voters, it was their first time seeing the workings of the state's politics up close, and they didn't like what they saw.
6: I think it kind of made them upset to see how the process works in that it's not always very forthcoming. There's you know different things they would try to do to sweeten a bill a voucher bill they they constantly would try to attach it to something good like the k through twelve funding that we need, you know, because they couldn't pass on its own merit, just keeping people aware of the entire process. And they didn't like it, didn't want vouchers, and they didn't like what was happening to try to push them through. So it just managed to keep people engaged, keep them calling when needed, or sending emails.
2: So in the wee hours of an April night, just the sort of setting where consequential legislation slides through in a one-party state, something unusual happened.
6: The senators and the representatives knew that people were paying attention, and a lot of times on that last night, things can go really late. We call it KS ledge after dark, and typically good things don't happen. I think this bill was taken up at 3.15 a.m. They get tired. People don't seem to be paying attention, but because all day long they were getting emails from people, and even in the evening, as the bill kind of changed its shape, there were still people watching, and I, I think that really made a
2: difference. So good old-fashioned grassroots communication and organizing carried the day in Kansas. But that still leaves us with a big question. Kansas is a rural state. Ninety percent of kids here attend public schools. It says right in the state constitution that, quote, the legislature shall provide for intellectual, educational, vocational, and scientific improvement by establishing and maintaining public schools. So how is it that the Republican Party here has embraced an education policy so at odds with what voters want? I put that question to the minority leader of the Kansas Senate, Dinah Sykes. She represents the 21st district, which covers suburban Kansas City. And she says that Republicans here have grown increasingly hostile to public schools, including the ones that their own constituents attend.
7: I mean, I struggle with this, but I think it's really the dismantling of public schools and I really believe that there is this faction of legislators who do not want people to learn how to think for themselves or to be able to critically think about issues. And they're threatened by that being taught in our schools. And so they really want to limit what people are exposed to they want to be kind of the moral police on how people think about issues, think about other people and i really think that they know that they're losing this issue as you know society is evolving but they're really so afraid of that change and so it's like how can we dismantle this public education trying to starve it and then put more funding into you know these private religious schools trying to Honestly, be the moral police.
2: Okay, it's time for us to leave Kansas. We're going to jump on I-70 and head 860 miles southeast to Atlanta, Georgia, and their state capitol building. That's where Coweta County High School student Cameron Hammett traveled back in April to express her opposition to school vouchers to her representative. Cameron was there as part of the Georgia Youth Justice Coalition, and she says she'd never done anything like this before.
0: It was fun being able to speak to somebody in power about how I feel and try to make a change and know that the worst that somebody can say
2: is no. The bill that Georgia Republicans like Cameron's rep were rallying around would have created a $6,500 student voucher to pay for private school tuition and homeschool expenses, to which students like Cameron said, wait a second, public schools in Georgia are already underfunded. And now you're going to take money away from them? Cameron says that she made the trek to the Capitol not just to say no to vouchers, but to make the case that Georgia students deserve more.
0: I think that we deserve better mental health resources. I think that we deserve more counselors just so we can have more direct one-on-one time with the counselor. Because at my school, it's 3,000 kids, and I think there's like six or seven counselors And we don't have enough time one-on-one with our counselor until it's junior meeting. If it's anything before that, you have to reach out. And I just think that not everybody has the motivation to reach out. If it was more counselors, maybe it would help a lot of people who don't have the motivation. Show them what they could be, what they can be, and what they could do. I think that we deserve to have an education that isn't censored. We deserve to be educated about the good, the bad, all of it. We deserve to know our history, because if we don't learn history, history will repeat itself.
2: Georgia's voucher bill went down to defeat in what was one of the biggest surprises in the state this season. The fun Students Not Systems Express was rolling through this state, and then it hit a wall. So what happened? Here's Alex Ames, an organizing leader for the Georgia Youth Justice Coalition
8: the short answer is that there are roughly 4,000 Camerons across the state who are actively engaged in our coalition, and that number has grown a lot. Students at our school have founded county-wide diversity clubs to push back against racial injustice, have stopped book bans that were about to happen in Coeta County, have been a part of stopping extremists who were running for school board last May. All of them lost in Coeta County, and that's just one county. We got 180-plus school districts across the state. And whether you're talking real rural districts or very urban or suburban districts, where I grew up in school, Gwinnett County, which has 200,000 students and is the most diverse school district in the Southeast, there's a lot of students who, regardless of their backgrounds, are understanding that our schools don't have the resources needed for all of us to succeed.
2: James Wilson is a sophomore at Georgia State and the Legislative Advocacy Coordinator for the Georgia Youth Justice Coalition. He says that when he and his fellow organizers actually took a hard look at who opposes school vouchers in Georgia, they realized something surprising.
9: We realized that parents, students, teachers, principals, superintendents, school leaders we're all on the same page. None of us want vouchers because we all know that we deserve better and we all know that better you know, has to come from more funding. And so when we looked at that, we realized, okay, if we had a united front right now, we could demonstrate to our lawmakers who ultimately are close to the top, not at the top, but close to the top of our power scheme. We can tell them and we can convince them, we don't want this. We don't need this. Don't tell other people that we do and don't vote on this bill like we do. And that's ultimately what helped win this fight.
2: So in order to understand what happened in Georgia, we need to pause here very briefly to talk about the theory of change driving voucher expansion across the country right now. In their effort to make school choice a quote-unquote litmus test issue for the GOP, advocates have essentially taken on rural Republicans, vote against vouchers, and will primary you with Betsy DeVos's money. And in states like Iowa and Arkansas and Utah, it worked. Not so in Georgia.
9: We were able to convince rural Republicans of something that they already knew, that vouchers were going to hurt their schools some of the worst because their schools are already horrifically underfunded. And when we take more money away from more schools, it's the rural schools that are going to suffer because they already have, you know, less students. They already have a smaller population of students. They already have really bad teacher shortages. They already have a lot of issues in transportation, so these rural districts are going to get hurt the worst. And so we organized a lot of rural students to show up at the Capitol, to call legislators, to send emails, to be the face of this anti-voucher fight.
2: Full disclosure, I am a Georgia Youth Justice Coalition super fan. I met Alex Ames several years ago when the group was just getting off the ground, and I was not at all surprised by what happened next.
8: We start winning a lot. You know, we start winning on stopping book bans. We stop anti-trans legislation. We stop Don't Say Gay for two years in a row. And then we look around and we say, okay, well, we can stop the really, really bad things, but our schools weren't that perfect to begin with. You know, my parents are public school teachers and do not make the type of money that you would need to pay bills. Do not make what would be considered a livable wage in Atlanta. And that is a crisis that impacts our students. So we start looking around saying, okay, well, why are we just sucking it up when it comes to the fact that we've got schools named after Confederate generals or the fact that you can't go see a counselor because your counselor serves 700 students or the fact that you go to the bathroom and there's no toilet paper for the entire school year so kids are bringing their own from home. Those types of things you know really are fixable and we start dreaming up ways in which we can bring all the types of folks impacted whether you're a parent who sends your children there, you're a faith leader or a business leader in the community impacted by these schools, you go and sit in a classroom every day or you work in the school building, you have a vet interest in these public schools being much more than just like the bare minimum as the state likes to call it, the quality basic education formula, better than a basic education. We can get there. In other
2: words, just beating back school privatization isn't enough. Now Alex and the coalition's army of youth organizers want Georgia to reimagine the way it funds schools. And they want lawmakers to understand that voters all over the state are paying attention.
8: The most exciting project for me on the horizon is that we here have an opportunity to radically reimagine how schools are funded, not just stop this budget for the next year round. It's going to come back. We've got those extremists. They're working their tails off. So are we. But it's the fact that Georgia's public school funding formula has the opportunity to transform into something that actually includes something like a poverty weight, something that almost every other state has that we don't. When we've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children living in poverty across our school system, we could double the amount of funding for school counselors, and we could make sure that this isn't just a one time thing. This isn't just a little victory. This is every single year, you know, monumental change, changes to salaries, changes to resources for students going through our schools already. And it really is possible now. We're talking to these lawmakers, regardless of what party preference or partisan line they are on the side of. And they understand this isn't about parties. This is about the fact that you have students, parents, and school workers in your community, regardless, and they are going to vote for leaders who are going to fight for their schools.
2: By now, you may be thinking, how do we get a group like this in our state? Well, I put that question to high school student Cameron Hammett, and she says that it starts with doing something.
0: I would say that the fight has to start somewhere, and if everybody is just thinking, oh, somebody else will take care of it, oh, it'll get done sometime, then we'll just be dealing with the same thing over and over. So it takes somebody to step up. If you feel strongly about anything, there's always something you can do. The best thing that you can do with the feeling is put action towards it to make it a change. If you feel like nobody else is going to do it, why not
2: start? Your voice does matter. Your voice can be heard. And James Wilson has a little advice for us, too.
9: My number one piece of advice is know that you are in the majority. Sometimes when you're working in legislative spaces, because a certain political party might not be in the majority there, It feels like you're already on the losing team. But when you look at poll after poll after poll after poll, the issues that we care about and the positions on those issues that we take are the ones that 54% of people agree with us on, 66% of people, 78% of Americans. The majority of people in America are on our side. And our job and our task is to just communicate to them, this is what you want. This is what we're doing to fight for it. Join us. Never feel like you're in the minority because I can almost promise you you're not.
2: Okay. So Jack, I want to bring you back in because I'm guessing that while we were hearing these inspiring stories about grassroots organizing, you may have been picking up on another theme here, which is that the coalition that is really pushing school vouchers may turn out to be a whole lot more fragile than we thought. So break it down for us.
3: Yeah. I think that we tend in our national conversation right now to lump all conservatives who are mounting attacks on the public schools together. And I see two really clear and separate strands there. One is a movement that has been evolving over decades. And that's really about market fundamentalism. These people are opposed to unions because unions impede the imperatives of capital They are opposed to regulation and bureaucracy because government also impedes markets. And there's a real libertarian focus on individuals, right? The unit of concern is the individual, not the community. So think of Margaret Thatcher saying there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women. And there's a second strand here, which I recently have been describing as a Christian nationalist strand. And this strand of opposition to public education is in many ways opposed to the separation of church and state. There is a kind of core belief that education should center religious values and conservative values. And there's a belief that, you know, the traditional dominant majorities in the United States should continue to have the dominant say in what public education looks like. Now, these two strands have become woven together recently because of culture war, because the market fundamentalists have so effectively deployed culture war to suggest, for instance, that it is possible to use vouchers To pursue a kind of religious version of public education. It may be in private schools, but this would enable communities of faith to have religion in the schools, and that wouldn't necessarily produce devastating consequences for public schools in rural communities. It'd be a way of having their cake and eating it too. Similarly, they have made arguments that the schools have been completely taken over by woke mobs who are insisting that traditional majorities be jettisoned, not just that their powers be reduced, but that white children learn to be ashamed of themselves and to hate their families, that straight children, cisgender children uh, be sidelined and marginalized so that trans kids can take over the sports teams, and so that politically conservative kids can be shunned and sidelined while Marxists and communists seize the day. Now, that has worked to a certain extent because, you know, for many of the reasons we've talked about before on this show, that it's kind of hard to know what exactly is happening in the schools at any given time. right? We don't follow kids into the building. The doors are shut. We mostly go on faith that positive things are happening and the professionals know what they're doing. And as we've talked many times on this show previously about, there have been many cases across American history where political opportunists have made claims about what's happening in the schools as a means of trying to create a sense of political paranoia that leads to victories in November. It can't go on forever, right? It can't go on forever because eventually you have to produce the evidence. You have to show people that the things that you're claiming are happening are really happening. And until that happens, until you hit that point, you can continue to rely on conspiracy theories and spurious claims. But once you hit that moment, right, there then is a kind of reckoning, That I think you're going to face in this movement, and that is that the folks who have been brought along because of culture war ultimately are not after the same thing that the market fundamentalists are after. They are not after the wholesale destruction of public education. They are not after a system that is predicated on the possibility of micro schools, of students learning online, of you know, the destruction of the teaching profession. Many of those folks have been taught to hate unions, but actually are themselves members of professions or work in trades or jobs where unions actually have done them a lot of good or would do them a lot of good. Many of those folks are not opposed to regulation other than the fact that they have been convinced that it's the enemy, because that's one of the things that ensures that their kids have rights, in schools, and they're very protective of their own kids, even if they have been taught not to be particularly protective of other kids. And of course, these people are very strongly in favor of the idea of community. They have sometimes different definitions of community, but the unit of concern for them is not the individual, right? The unit of concern for them is, in many cases, a community that they feel has been politically marginalized by the Democratic Party. So I don't see this as a long-term, lasting coalition because there's a kind of cooked-up, short-term interest convergence there, which, if you don't act swiftly enough, is not going to get you the legislative victory you want, which is a universal voucher in your states. And I think that's what explains the difference between a state like Iowa and a state like Idaho. You've got to move fast before people ask you for the evidence, you've got to move quickly before people realize that your long-term aim actually doesn't coincide with their interests.
2: Well, Jack, if I didn't know better, I'd think that you were the one who had been interviewing a cast of thousands from Kansas, Idaho, and, and who knows what other states.
3: Just It's just reading thousands of pages, Jennifer.
2: Okay, back to our field trip. Our final stop is about a 32-hour drive from Atlanta. So good time to catch up on all those episodes of the pod you missed. We're heading to Idaho. And this leg of our trip started with an email from a guy named Luke Mayville, the co-founder of a grassroots group called Reclaim Idaho. He dropped us a line back in March to share the news that school vouchers in Idaho were dead and to thank us for, quote, helping those of us in the trenches understand the stakes of this issue. People have to understand the threat and name it before they can beat it back, end quote. You are more than welcome, Luke. And when I talked to Luke about how he and his scrappy organization helped stop the privatization train, he explained that Idaho, like a lot of states right now, has a democracy problem. A closed primary system and a Republican party that increasingly caters to the fringe has meant that elected officials are way out of touch with the priorities of the people they're supposed to represent.
1: What that means is that you usually only have to win the support of about 10% of the voting age population in order to get a seat in the legislature. So all of the politics becomes a game of courting a very small minority of the electorate, not to mention then responding to special interest groups who aren't very representative of public opinion. And left completely behind are the preferences of the vast majority of the people on critical issues, like you know, the ones we focused on as an organization, like health care access, funding for public schools, access to the ballot initiative process. These types of issues, we've just found over and over again that the public at large holds vastly different views than, than the legislators do.
2: Luke says that there is no single issue that better represents the disconnect between Idaho's political establishment and the state's residents than school vouchers.
1: The voucher issue really is exhibit A of the disconnect between the opinions of the majority and the opinions of a small minority, including legislators. So, for example, at the outset of the 2023 legislative session, we heard all of this talk in Boise, in the capital and among the media and among legislators of just how big this school choice issue is and how it's like, this is really the year when school choice is going to be the big issue and, and something has to be done. Like This is an urgent problem that's calling for a solution. We're not quite sure what shape it's going to take, but it needs to be addressed. And you would just get the sense listening to them that there's some kind of like widespread agitation that the population at large has just been unsettled and is demanding some kind of change.
2: A little more background on Reclaim Idaho, they're known for these massive signature drives around issues like Medicaid expansion and school funding that require talking to hundreds of thousands of voters. These efforts have made the group a powerful organizing force that can speak to what the state's residents actually care about, and that is not school vouchers.
1: Probably the most significant poll done by the Idaho statesman found that It was about 63% opposed vouchers, I believe, and they were even unpopular among voters who considered themselves conservative. We found that that was only confirmed when we started going around the state and going door to door. And as we talked with people about the issue, overwhelmingly, it was either that they didn't know about it, or as soon as they heard a little bit about the issue and the proposal to take funding out of public schools and put it towards private school tuition, they didn't like it. They just, on the face of it, they thought that was a bad idea.
2: Last year, Reclaim Idaho and its army of volunteers fanned the state gathering signatures for a measure that would have increased school funding by $300 million a year. And they learned something surprising.
1: So we talked to just an enormous percentage of the overall population about public schools and their willingness to fund them and support them. And we found that while it is very much true that there is a culture war going on, that there is a lot of concern about the curriculum, people do have a lot of perceptions of what's happening that they're concerned about in the public schools. We saw a lot of evidence of that, but we did not see evidence of people giving up on public education or desiring to opt out and certainly not desiring to defund or dismantle public schools. We heard a lot of people talk about CRT and their concern about it, and then turn around and sign our initiative that would increase taxes in order to fund public schools. And we almost never heard anyone say something like, you know, fund students, not systems.
2: You are probably so familiar by now with the story of School Choice Spring that I can skip ahead here. But the tale being told in Idaho went like this, that during the pandemic, parents got to see school for themselves and they didn't like what they saw, insert reason here. And as a result, parents are now demanding private school vouchers, education savings accounts, or just the straight up defunding of public schools.
1: What we found is that, yes, that they are half right in the sense that there is a great deal of frustration brewing out there about, at the very least, about perceived issues with the curriculum, about perceived issues with how teachers are teaching. But where they're dead wrong is that that frustration inevitably leads to an opting out of the public education system that frustration could lead in any number of places. I even think there's a healthy place that that could lead. If it leads to more democratic engagement with public schools, if it leads to more of a sense of responsibility that you should be paying attention to what's happening with your public school district, then that could be great. Of course, there's some uglier versions of that that we've seen all around the country as well. Ultimately, the question of whether... Frustration with public schools leads to a desire to opt out of public schools or a desire to defund public schools. That question is going to be determined by politics and by civic engagement. And it's going to be determined by what we do, what organizers do, what teachers do, what citizens who support public education do.
2: In the end, the school voucher bills that were debated and defeated in Idaho this year met a similar fate to what we heard about in Kansas and Georgia. Special interest groups and big-money school choice PACs couldn't drown out the voices of regular people. And there was another issue that just wouldn't go away.
1: The Achilles' heel of the voucher movement is that they have no real answer to the question of rural education that became clear as soon as we started driving around the state and we set out and went to every county in idaho where there are no private schools available and we talked to as many people as we can we built an email list to keep people informed about all the different voucher bills that were emerging and then we mobilized people to show up remotely via zoom to testify from rural communities And there was just no compelling answer. The voucher proponents were really in disarray when it came to speaking to the issues of rural communities. As we've looked around at the politics of other states, they just have not answered the basic questions that arise as soon as you try to implement statewide voucher programs that do not serve rural communities and that in fact siphon money out of rural communities.
2: And Luke says that the Achilles heel of the school choice movement is also a major organizing opportunity for those of us who believe in public education.
1: So that's an enormous advantage for any organization that goes out and does the work of of reaching rural voters and starting the conversation in communities. I think generally the voucher proponents in in the national voucher movement is just hoping that in most states, that that type of organization won't happen.
2: A big thanks to everyone who assisted in the making of this episode, Luke Mayville from Idaho, Alex Ames, James Wilson, and Cameron Hammett from Georgia, and from Kansas, Aaron Wood, Leah Fleiter, and Senator Dinah Sykes. Thanks for sharing your stories and for making at least one person in the world, that would be me, feel a little bit better. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about where we think Operation School Privatization is headed next. We'll also be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. NAEP history scores are down. Insert pet reason and sales pitch here. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. Jack, you made a point earlier that I want to return to. You mentioned that the advocates of privatization who really seem to be on a winning streak. How many times did we hear references to school choice spring? and how you know it all started during the pandemic that parents eyes were opened they you know what they saw on zoom the gender transitions it infuriated them and then that set in motion this just unbelievable wave and people marching in the streets demanding education savings accounts and so you know one by one you know states start to to fall in line and there are so many op-eds written to this effect mostly conservative but not always i just read one by richard callenberg basically making the same point point and then all of a sudden the momentum seems to slow down and and you have this unlikely group of states where these coalitions form and people say not so fast and it it made me think about your point that that you know like you ha- kind of had to ram this stuff through quickly because the the more that people figured out the more they got their hands on the the evidence base that didn't back up any of the claims that were made, the more they came to understand the argument that you and I were making about this being a reverse Robin Hood, uh, a wealth transfer um, from the kids who needed the most support in schools to affluent parents who already send their kids to private, mostly religious schools, the less they liked it. And so frankly, now I'm wondering about the future of the cause because now we've got these states that have enacted these sweeping measures where the math is going to get really ugly really fast.
3: I've been reading accounts of legislative efforts in places like Iowa and Georgia, Kansas and Idaho. And one of the things that emerges there is exactly what we're talking about, about the kind of short-term interest convergence that you really need to act swiftly upon because the long-term interests really aren't there. And it's not just for, let's say, rural communities. So there's a great quote from a member of the Kansas legislature saying, I want to be at the meeting when you meet with your constituents and say, I voted to take monies away from your public schools and give them to imaginary micro schools or some other homeschooling that's totally unregulated. So it's not just that, it's also the fact that there is not long-term interest convergence between some of the folks who are first and foremost concerned with eliminating what they would deridingly refer to as government schools, and Republicans who are first and foremost concerned with things like balanced budgets. So you've got an Idaho legislator saying, it's actually against my conservative Republican perspective to hand this money out with no accountability that these precious tax dollars are being used wisely. So I think that what explains the stunning string of victories is likely that a lot of folks whose agenda items were, you know, dismantling public education, producing a kind of free market for education, that those folks' fully understood the degree to which many of their potential supporters would not actually be thrilled with the outcomes here so looking at new hampshire for instance where they are now expecting the allocation for their voucher program to exceed what they had anticipated by several thousand percent right and and again if your if your victory is damaging public education, well, then that's the price of it. But if you are fundamentally committed to reducing the burden of taxation, and if you are fundamentally committed to ensuring that budgets are balanced, that's not a good outcome there, right? And again, combine that with the fact that many of these communities are not ultimately in favor of dismantling their own public schools, right? that in many ways they've been convinced that the schools have taken a turn for the worse. And if that really is true, and if there really are viable alternatives, they'll go down that path. But neither of those things is the case.
2: Well, Jack, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed working on this episode and how inspiring it was to hear these stories about, you know, people organizing and just sort of like talking to friends and neighbors and often finding the kind of language to make the case for education as a public good that, you know, we often bemoan has disappeared. So I'm just really glad that we get to share their stories because I have a feeling that it will make. People feel better just hearing this episode. But alas, that can't last because we need to head into the weeds and we've got a feel bad topic for that.
3: Well, fortunately, most of our listeners will not be following us into the weeds because they embrace the democratic nature of this show, which requires nothing of them except their willingness to be collaborators in an intellectual enterprise. We thank you for that. And if you want to support the show, there are lots of ways for you to do that. Share the latest episode or your favorite episode with somebody who you think might enjoy it. Go on, give us a rating, help make sure that we are at least. The first show called Have You Heard that returns in a search. Uh, we love when we hear that you're listening to the show, that you liked the show, that you've shared the show. Um, so you can either do that by sending us a note to the Have You Heard mailbag or by tagging the show's Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. Um, Jennifer, I am sure that that's the end of the show. Uh, So do you have anything else that you could possibly want to say before we wrap things up?
2: Why, yes, Jack, I do. So for our our listeners who are feeling generous but also are gluttons for punishment, (laughs) we do a little segment we call (laughs) In the Weeds for our Patreon supporters. And today we're going to be talking about, wait for it, Nape history scores. (laughs) jack jack is very excited about this
3: i've got sample questions ready to go oh
2: great if this intrigues you all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter by throwing just a few dollars our way each month you get things like a custom reading list to go with each episode you get what else do you get you get to come with us into the weeds
3: and if you our a donator at approximately $10 a month, I think, you get a copy of the, it's not the second edition of the book, it's the paperback edition, but it has a new introduction, or a new preface.
2: Well, Jack, that was really well done. So, uh, and... What, was it? Your support is what helps us keep this show going and and keeps our quality programming alive. Anything else, Jack?
3: No, uh, I... I have a special message for members of the uh, Diamond Society, but they know how to log in using their secret Dakota rings. So
2: once uh, again, I walked right into that. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.